We'll get started with today's webinar, during which we're going to cover the new SEC record-keeping requirements for BDs under Exchange Act Rule 17A4, and we're going to hit on some key related compliance considerations. We'll start with quick intros. I'm Nick Lacerdo. I'm a partner at Goodwin Proctor. I'm based here in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, I'm a long-term long BBA member, and I'm also a member of the Financial Services Committee at BBA. I'm joined by Noel Barnes and Ethan Corey. We're the real show today. And so, Noel, why don't I kick it off to you and you can introduce yourself? Yep. So, Noel Barnes, I am Associate General Counsel in uh, Commonwealth Financial. And for those who are not familiar with Commonwealth, we are a retail dual registrant, um, so BDRIA. Um, but we focus, while we do have high net worth clients, um, which is somewhat irrelevant for this particular conversation, um, <laughs> we operate mostly in the retail space. And Ethan? Hi, I'm Ethan Corey. I'm a senior counsel at Evershed Sutherland, um, and I'm affiliated with the DC office, although I'm remote and currently sitting in Newton, Massachusetts. Um, I've been practicing in this area for um, a tad over 20 years. Um, before I joined Evershed Sutherland, um, I was at a uh, virtual law firm. And before that, um, I was at a large asset manager in the back bay. And before that, I was at uh, Deckert and at the SEC. So uh, that's my background. And uh, I'm like Nick, I'm also on the financial services section. Thank you both. So I think as many folks on the webinar here today know back in October 2022, the SEC adopted amendments to Exchange Act Rule 17A4. We thought it would be really important, particularly given, uh, given the time of year, to have a webinar on that and hit on some of the key issues. We're going to focus almost entirely on BDs today, but I think it's probably quite unavoidable to um, not hit on advisors somewhat. We're hoping to do a similar session later in the spring or in the fall covering both BD and IA record-keeping issues, but uh, TBD and the timing of that. So we're going to talk about 17A4 at a high level. We're going to dig in on some nuanced issues. We're going to talk about some of the SEC scrutiny recently on uh, electronic communications issues in the record-keeping area. And, um, you know, this is to say, um, to put it mildly, a, a real hot-button issue that I think affects essentially every SEC registrant. Uh, there have been many settlements recently. A lot of firms have disclosed that they're subject to ongoing investigations and in-settlement discussions. So I'm guessing that a lot of folks may be joined today uh, expecting to hit on that. So we'll, we'll definitely do our best on that note. So Noel and Ethan, before I go into some of the uh, high-level changes from the October amendments, did you guys want to say anything uh, just really quickly from either of your perspectives? So I, I can jump in and um, generally, I think it's about time. Um, I think given the, the number of rules that the SEC has been coming out with recently, um, this was one that I think made sense. Um, it up, it updated rules so that it didn't focus on faxes and um, CDs and things like that. Um, and it talked more about cloud-based service providers and maybe it doesn't go into AI, um, but it's certainly trying to get, get the rules to where the industry is and hopefully where it's going. Um, so for all of that, I actually really appreciate the changes for this particular rule um, and the flexibility it provides us for the future. So I would... Yes. So I would generally concur with Noel. I think that of the recent rulemakings of the SEC, um, this is one of its better ones. However, I would say that it also falls into the category of no good deed goes unpunished because um, what I found um, as the compliance day drew closer, um, people had a bunch of questions about uh, well, should we use the DEO alternative? Uh, should we continue with the third party? You know, is there a combination? And uh, I'm probably using a bit too much jargon right now. Um, but you know, there are all sorts of interpretive issues. And then there are also uh, um, a lot of uh, 
third party uh, service bureaus um, that uh, were just really uh, making it very difficult uh, for uh, broker dealers to uh, come up with a holistic compliance program uh, under uh, the amended rule. Yeah, and why don't I just hit on two or three really key areas that came out of the October 2022 amendments. Before I do that, there's a Q&A function. We're going to try to do our best to keep our eyes on that and also to the extent people want to put questions in there to try to answer them in real time. Um, probably not going to follow up after the fact just to be totally blunt with everybody, but we'll do our best during um, the session today. And so I think for the firms who are actually uh, part of a BD, you are probably painfully aware by now that the compliance date came and went on May 3rd. We thought the timing would actually be better after the compliance date, the compliance deadline rather, simply because doing anything before almost eluding um, or pegging off of Ethan's point uh, would probably just be too much noise while you guys were all trying to figure out what to do, how to do it and um, get it done by May 3rd. But now that you've lived with it for a few weeks, to the extent you've had to make any changes to your systems or to your approaches or got in new undertakings, we thought now would be a good time to actually start to dig in on any of those. So to me, and Ethan and Noel, feel free to chime in at any point. I think the two big key changes are uh, the new audit trail alternative to electronic record keeping and uh, guidance related to use of cloud service providers, uh, cloud storage providers, and pegging off that, um, the alternative undertaking. And we'll get into a little bit more detail on that. So in relation to the new audit trail alternative, I think as many people know, for many, many, many years, BDs have needed to maintain their regulatory records in WORM format, the WORM standing for write once, read many, essentially uh, non-erasable and non-rewritable record keeping. That's been uh, an area of a lot of complexity, significant cost for firms. I'll give um, SIFMA, most folks know what SIFMA is. I'll give SIFMA a lot of credit. They've advocated on behalf of their member firms for many, many years now to basically come up with some alternative to worm record keeping. Um, we'll skip the details of what the alternative, uh, uh, the audit trail alternative is for now. Um, Ethan and Noel, if you guys want to go into that a little bit later, we can. I think the other key issue that the um, October 2022 amendment set on was guidance in relation to the use of cloud service providers, really trying as best they can to give the industry clarity that cloud service providers can be used uh, and how to go about doing so. Um, there's also a new alternative undertaking. Uh, so I think as a lot of folks are, are aware, um, there's been an undertaking for designated third-party record keepers, basically that in the event the registrant itself, the BD, either can't or is unwilling to provide regulatory records to the SEC, that that record keeper, that designated third-party record keeper will step basically into the shoes of the registrant and provide those records um, to the SEC upon request. I think the SEC has literally acknowledged that they've never, ever leaned on that and they've never actually made that request. I could be wrong about that. Um, but the alternative undertaking is one in which we can get into a little bit detail in a second, one in which I think gives uh, not only firms, but the industry and service providers a lot more flexibility to basically go out and um, not require cumbersome protocols and uh, agreements uh, in place that really just are never going to be utilized. Um, so, Ethan, um, maybe really quickly we'll go to you in terms of uh, either the alternative undertaking or um, the audit trail alternative itself. Any just high-level thoughts you want to jump into before we get into specific nuances or areas? So, basically, I think, um, at least for right now, um, to the extent that it's being used, I think it's really being used more by uh, new entrants. Um, people who already have um, a warm record keeping system um, are not um, jumping up and down and saying, yippee Kaye, I can uh, cut over to uh, an audit trail alternative. Um, they're uh, still using um, the warm the warm system. You know that could change. It probably um, will change, but uh, you know, just even in talking to uh, colleagues who uh, were at the FINRA conference last week, uh, um, just 
it's there. There's not this mass migration that's happening right now. And, and do you think that's um, you mentioned like you know new entrants maybe being more open to it than existing registrants? Um, do you think that's because they're basically kind of starting from scratch and they don't have the legacy worm systems and the sunk costs that they've already put in, or are there other contributing factors? Sunk costs was actually um, the um, the word, those were the words that I was going to use in response to your question. So yes, I think that's uh, um, precisely what's going on. No, and, and I can add, um, so cost and then understanding our current infrastructure. And, and yes, there would be costs to make improvements or changes to the infrastructure in order to support the audit trail. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, we have to look at the last seven plus years, right, of what we currently have in warm format. Then we also have to look at who our vendors are, who are storing our records, and do they, what are they doing? Uh, when does our co contract expire? Does it change to audit trail, um, change the terms of our relationship with them, the costs associated with them. And then for the records that we keep internally, and where we aren't using a third-party vendor, you know, how are we currently storing them? And then um, kind of the cost, manpower, other projects that we have going on and how we want to prioritize um, our workforce to figure out how to change our underlying infrastructure to support an audit trial environment. Um, and then you have, you know, backup servers and other things that come into play as well. Yeah, Noelle, you hit on a, a really important issue, which is looking back at retention periods. And at least from where I sit, a lot of firms have been struggling with the notion of making a significant, a significant investment into uh, deploying the audit trail alternative, which, by the way, is new. And a lot of firms are really reluctant to deal with anything that's new because we don't have guidance, we don't have exams, we don't have, uh, we don't have enforcement actions that have given clarity and little nuggets of wisdom. But also, when you look about um, when you look back at the retention periods. I think firms have been grappling with what that means in terms of maybe um, maintaining two different systems in parallel for a number of a number of years. Because with respect to legacy records, you're going to continue to maintain those in the worm format, and then the going forward records pursuant to the audit trail alternative that would be separate and distinct. And again, to your point, internal resources for headcount, financial resources. It's a it's a steep climb, I think for a lot of firms to make. And I personally haven't heard of any actually going down that path. Ethan, it sounds like maybe you have, but um, if you have, I feel like it's probably uh, a small number of firms, right? No, I mean, I haven't heard of anybody going down that path. You know, just people who are getting into the business, it's more they're thinking about the audit trail alternative because they they don't have the uh, um, the records issue or the sunk costs issue with, um, that uh, Noel and you have have identified. Yeah, I think you know my two cents. I'm hopeful. I don't know if I'm optimistic, but I'm hopeful that SEC staff, maybe even Finra staff too, will come out with guidance in the near future um, as we get past the compliance date. In terms of much like Reg BI and CRS, things that they've seen during exams over the course of the next nine months or so. Uh, and sharing that with the industry, tips on how to actually comply. Uh, I, I make the saying that words matter and they can often hurt. And there are a lot of words that were changed and a lot of words that were shared in the adopting release that folks like me, I'm like, I don't know what that means. You know, why did you change that word? And if you didn't follow up in terms of um, what that word change actually means, you're really creating open questions for firms and, and their advisors in terms of how to actually go about complying. And I don't know, I don't know if you guys have thought similar thoughts and maybe struggled with that too. Um, we have given kind of the other priorities that we have going on right now. Uh, we are tabling the audit trail conversation. I think it's something that we definitely like the idea of, um, and, and we actually know that there are some service providers that currently offer audit trails. So if you look at um, like Microsoft, just as an example, um, 
they have worm-based compliance and they have audit-based compliant um, record keeping. And the reality with, with Microsoft, my assumption is the reason why they offer audit trail is because they service more than just financial services. Um, We never looked at it previously because we didn't, we couldn't. Um, But now we're going to look at it, particularly next time our contract comes available on whether or not their offering is actually a viable product for us. Um, But yeah, there's, there's a lot of kind of fear in the unknown um, generally. (laughs) So you know, I think it has its its benefits, like cost reduction and the fact that you're not housing years of records and the entire record at multiple um, places and that you can kind of, you, you can tie it back together. But then there's risk in, well, if you lose a piece of the chain, how can you still actually create that record going forward? And how do you perform due diligence on, on a vendor or ourselves, right? Um, how do you create controls um, and a compliance program to test those controls in a way that one, we feel comfortable with um, generally that comply with the rule, but then also that comply with the SEC's interpretation of the rule. So we honestly haven't gotten into it in great detail yet, uh, but I know it's coming. uh, And I think a lot of it's going to happen when contracts come available for renewal. um, If we're going to enter a new third-party record keeper relationship and, and things like that. Um, but right now we're, we're kind of on status quo though. Um, and I, I do think that a lot of other companies are in the same boat, but I, but I agree. I mean, we don't know how the SEC, just like any rule is going to actually enforce the rules that they have. So given that this is a new one and that nobody's doing it, um, we haven't discussed this internally, but you know, there's always that thought of, do you want to be first to market? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that I think is really interesting, I think a lot of firms and maybe even their advisors have been on autopilot for many years because we've lived with Worm for a really long time and haven't really needed to, to think or rethink how to go about achieving compliance. I think one thing that the adopting release from October actually caused or created is a refreshed look at certain things. So put a couple questions out there to you guys. One is, um, you know, have you given any additional or new thought to whether certain records are even uh, records of the business as such and therefore required to be retained? Have you guys implemented any fresh looks at things? Have you implemented any new uh, ways to determine whether something is in or out? Maybe you guys take a very conservative approach and kind of Everything is a record and therefore you're retaining everything. And then another refreshed area is on the undertakings and going back to your third party record keepers and um, getting those refreshed undertakings, even if you're not using the alternative undertaking, going back to them as the SEC indicated and as Friend were reminded firms that the wording in the undertaking actually changed. You've got to go back and get a refresh on those. There was a question in there somewhere. You just threw a couple of things out. Um, As far as the refresh, yes, uh, we had to go out to all of our service providers um, and get updated language, even for the historical, traditional um, third-party undertaking letters. uh, The language in that also changed. So we did have to go through and update those, um, see whether or not for the alternative, if they were a cloud-based service provider, if we do have independent access to actually get information immediately uh, for the SEC to provide it to them. Um, So we did do that in terms of, you know, are you conservative or not conservative? So overall, um, we lean on the conservative side. So we do retain uh, a a good number of records for an extended period of time. Uh, You know, we're looking at that right now and whether or not it makes sense to limit what we're retaining to the prescribed periods within the rule or at least something closer to it. Um, Harder said than, than done. Uh, So we're looking at whether or not we, you know, what, records should we preserve and for what period of time. Um, 
it's a conversation I've actually had at a couple of different firms that I've been at. Uh, it ends up being a lot more challenging than you think. <laughs> um, and even though saving everything is very costly, it's it's a lot easier um, to do. And so sometimes that's where you land. Um, but in terms of this particular rule, I mean, with our control testing for our 3120, we're taking a look at these 17A4 as we always do, um, but we're taking the opportunity through testing to see what do we have, you know, have we updated policies and procedures? Um, are we retaining what we're supposed to retain? What do we retain in excess of that? Um, and, you know, I, I would say we're, it's less because of the rule that we're doing it and more just through normal periodic testing and and other questions that are coming up as part of our kind of BAU. Got it. And Ethan, I don't know if you're in a boat similar to mine, but basically I heard from a lot of clients right after the adoption. I heard from a lot of clients in like late Jan, early Feb. And then I heard from the majority of my clients like three weeks ago. And they're like, oh my gosh, we've got all this stuff going on. We've got to like meet the compliance date. What do we do? So how have you been triaging that for clients during any of those periods? So it, it's been interesting. I mean, um, you know, there's, you know, Noel alluded to uh, the you know, business is such requirement and, you know, just, you know, going back and reviewing records. And sometimes there's a very easy answer, which is, um, are you involved in litigation? Um, and if that's the case, then there's probably a litigation hold that uh, is going to apply to everything. And so it uh, doesn't really matter whether it relates to the business as such. Um, it's probably going to be uh, um, encompassed within the litigation hold. Um, you know, when you get away from that, um, I think actually have to look at, amongst other things, uh, the SEC's recent actions, uh, um, which we're going to get into later, um, on off-channel communications because they uh, list um, a variety of uh, um, types of communications as relating to uh, the broker's uh, business as such. So, uh, you know, there's some uh, guidance there. Um, then, you know, there was also the questions about the undertakings, and those were coming both from broker dealers and also from third party providers. And what was interesting was, you know, in some cases, they were getting undertakings to be signed and sent back to broker dealers, but the undertakings did not. Um, precisely uh, match the wording that was required um, by the SEC rule and you know, were addressed to parties other than the FINRA um, and or the SEC. Um, so uh, that got to be uh, interesting as well, you know, how to uh, navigate uh, that boat. Yeah, and I'll just um, remind folks that if they want to put any questions, they can in the Q&A. We, just in the interest of time, chose to keep things pretty high level and just hit on a key area, a couple key areas from the October amendments. Ethan, I suspect you guys probably put out a client alert or two. I know we did as well on our team. FINRA has put out some information. There's a lot of resources out there, but I feel like if folks uh, want any more or greater detail, feel free to reach out to BBA or even just to any of us directly. And I think we'd be happy to get those resources um, to anyone. Um, and and not to um, kind of break your plug <laughs> or yeah. interrupt you, but, um, you know, I do go to Finner's website every once in a while um, and they have a lot of information on books and records. So to the extent that you haven't been there, it is a resource, um, one for just general interpretive guidance, um, but also they have a checklist. Um, so you can use that kind of as a starting point for your books and records. Um, and then, you know, they got FAQs and other things. And then specific to the changes that were effective earlier this month, they have a pretty nice comparison of what the prior rule is and what the new rule is and what the changes are high level, um, but it's a good starting point. And particularly if you have anybody junior within your team, um, it, it it's 
I, I kind of, I like starting here because I like charts <laughs> um, more than I like words. Go figure. Um, but I mean, for anybody who has looked at the rule, it, it is not a long one generally. Um, but I throw that as uh, other resources that are available. Yeah. Yeah. And the FINRA comparison chart was pretty helpful. Yeah. One other plug that I'll make for FINRA um, was that their staff, um, when I called, was actually also really helpful, really responsive. Uh, um, it's unusually quick response amongst regulate uh, amongst regulators and unusually, unusually practical uh, advice. Yeah, and the same goes for the SEC staff. There's a particular group within trading and markets that has responsibility for these issues. And there's a little known nugget of wisdom in a different rulemaking from about a year and a half earlier, where they actually surprisingly tipped their hat to the fact that this rulemaking was coming down the pike. And they basically said, in you know, when they had rolled out the record-keeping obligations for security-based swap entities, which are also included in the October amendments, but I don't that probably doesn't apply to anybody here on the, the webinar. And so we chose not to spend the time on it. But in the broader um security-based swap entity record keeping adopting release from, I don't know, a year and a half earlier, they made the same statement in there. We're going to, they so they didn't carry forward worm for SBS entities. And they basically said, we're going to deal with this for BDs in another rulemaking. It was quite rare to see that. And I think another tip of the hat to SIFMA um, and their advocacy efforts. So let's, let's stick on the undertaking for a minute. It's different. I think the SEC has intended it to be a little bit more flexible. And Noel, maybe I'll put you guys on the spot and you know, get your thoughts on whether you have approached it any differently. Have there been any complexities in getting the undertaking, either the traditional one from firms that were providing that service for you historically, or even uh, new vendors in which you've engaged, or maybe you're going down the alternative undertaking path and maybe even using the uh, DEO, the designated designated executive officers, which is a, another area of perceived flexibility. Yep. Um, so Ethan, I think, talked about this a little bit already, um, but the, all right, so, sorry, my head went back to the DNO concept. Um, so maybe I'll tackle that first. Yep. The, <laughs> So you, utilizing an internal executive officer um, to be able to get to get your records as opposed to a third party uh, is not something that we chose to do at this time um, in for various reasons. Um, you know, there's conversations about who would that be? Where would that person live? Who would their designate designated um, kind of assignees be as well? Because the rule does go kind of into detail and terms of how many people you can name um, both as delegate and as kind of an assignee. Um, so we talked about it at a high level and, and we decided to just move forward with third-party undertakings for right now. Um, but I think that the, you know, on a go forward basis, parsing out where we might have the designated officer do certain things and then have third parties do other things and, and, and what that looks like. Um, you know, I was also thinking about if we were to designate someone internally, you want to make sure that you have the right um, E&O insurance to be able to, you know, cover yourself should there ever be an issue with that. Um, and so I think that there are some kind of other things that you need to think about before designating somebody um, that might not be readily apparent just from the role. Uh, anyway, so we, we have just decided to not do that at this time. Uh, in terms of the undertakings, uh, we had to reach out to everybody. I think there may have been one vendor that reached out to us first, um, but for the most part, we tried to be proactive. A um, couple of them came back to us right away. Other ones, um, it was you know late April, early May that we were getting their letters. Uh, for the most part, I think they tried to follow the language verbatim that's prescribed in the role, but there were instances where they did tweak a few things, um, 
which, you know, we just had a conversation of why they did it. And we didn't think that it materially changed the intent of the rule or, or what the SEC was getting at. So um, we were okay with those. We did file a couple of the um, alternatives because we do have cloud-based service providers. And before we did that, you know, yes, we looked at the language, but we also wanted to look at whether or not we did in fact have independent access Mm -hmm. uh, and we had to rely on whether we had to rely on the third party in any manner in order to get information. Um, So we did do an analysis on that prior to submitting those letters. Yeah. And a couple of interesting points, Ethan, I definitely want to go to you in a sec, but I actually hadn't thought about the E&O coverage consideration and I think that's a really um, wise point because to the extent you've got uh, an executive officer and designees and others that are, you know, explicitly being named to take on certain responsibility that the SEC considers to be incredibly important. And with an increase over the last few years of personal liability for CCOs and others, I think that's a really important consideration that a lot of firms are going through like yours in terms of like, even if that's the path you want to go down, you can't really force that on people. Maybe you can, but it's another consideration. Are you going to be paying people more to take on that added responsibility? Maybe that's part of the calculus for some firms. Yeah. Ethan, where does the person live? Ethan, I'm curious, actually. Um, for any of your firms who have designated an executive officer internally, is that person in technology? Is that person in compliance? Um, I know I have an opinion of where that person should be, but I'm curious how other firms are doing it. So uh, for me, one of the interesting issues um, has been just what I'll call the variance between at least what the rule and the release contemplated and what's going on, or at least, you know, what I was seeing with clients um, in practice. And by that, what I mean is the rule, pardon me, um, seems to contemplate you have either a DEO or a third party officer, and there's only one, mind you. And one of the one of the interpretive issues um, that I wanted to hit on that um, you alluded to before, um, as far as changes um, from the past rule that weren't really addressed in the adopting release, was that um, in the prior version of the rule, it contemplated there being uh, uh, multiple uh, um, third party uh, uh, officers with uh, you know, who could provide access undertakings, whereas now the rule is drafted so that it appears that you could only have a, a single um, third-party officer. Um, and then as far as either the traditional undertaking or the uh, alternative undertaking, you know, it contemplates that it would be a different third-party than um, the third-party officer. In practice, you know, what we were finding um, was that you would have maybe a designated officer um, give the undertaking with respect to certain categories of records. Um, You would have one third party give the access undertaking with respect to another subset of records, a different third party giving the undertaking with respect to yet another subset of records and maybe the same third party that was giving the access undertaking with respect to one subset of records was also giving um, the traditional undertaking with respect to that set of records. And that, you know, I think that was one of the things that uh, um, just was a bit difficult to uh, um, wrap my brain around, uh, you know, just because um, where people were landing was just so different from at least reading the adopting release, you know, how the SEC uh, envisioned um, the rule operating. But, uh, you know, that was one of the instances, at least with respect to the access undertaking, uh, where, you know, FINRA guidance was invaluable, you know, given that they were the ones, you know, getting the access undertakings. 
So maybe uh, shifting gears for a sec, because I, I don't want to keep everybody for the full hour. So I think we're going to try to go for about another maybe 10 or so. What about redundancy? Noelle, you alluded to you know where people sit or where people are, I think mostly from an operational standpoint or from a role standpoint. What about the requirement to have redundant backup systems and you know, have the, has the rulemaking caused you guys to look at that any differently today than you would have, say, a year ago? Um, so it hasn't. I mean, we have servers in multiple locations um, and, and we're sticking with Worm. So we haven't looked at it just yet. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Ethan, is that pretty consistent with your view and what you're saying? Yes, uh, honestly, yeah, that, that was pretty low down in the list of what people were concerned with. Okay. Noel, we were talking earlier about retention periods and maybe maintaining two systems in parallel for a period of time for those firms who do actually choose to go down uh, the, alternative, um, the alternative audit trail path. What about destruction schedules and retention schedules? And, you know, I think I know your answer probably, it's probably a no change, but has the rulemaking led you guys to maybe reconsider how you're approaching retention periods, recognizing that, um, to Ethan's point, sometimes there may actually be a litigation hold, which would essentially uh, trump everything else. But, you know, are you guys doing anything different? Are you looking at this any differently? And what do you think about when you're actually going out and identifying retention periods? You know, if six years is a requirement, or if three years is a requirement, are you guys holding for nine? Are you holding for 12? Are you taking that overly conservative approach you alluded to or be, so, maybe not so I, I would say anytime you look at cost, the conversation about, well, why are we holding records longer than we need to comes up. Um, and I think a change like this within the rule where you're talking about worm versus audit trail and maybe starting a relationship with a new entity, new vendor, um, or you're just kind of looking and reevaluating where things currently lie and where you want to move for the future, cost is going to come up. And, and so we end, we are having conversations and looking at our retention periods and, um, you know, depending on the record, um, whether it's an advisor record, so conversations that they're having with their clients directly and suitability discussions and things like that. You know, we might take a different approach than our advertising review versus our kind of complaints. So we're looking at all of that. Um, like I said, we've looked at it in the past and we'll probably look at it again. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so we haven't changed anything, but has it has it definitely prompted us to have conversations? Absolutely. Yeah, and Ethan, I'm interested in your thoughts. I mean... I try to be not an overly conservative advisor to clients and say, look, you know, if you're able to it's kind of like turning right on red here in mass, right? It's like, if it doesn't say you can't, you can. And if the rule says you're able to destroy something after a period of time, there are some considerations um, to take into account in terms of actually going forward and doing so. How do you look at it? How do you advise? Clients? So I'm going to, I'm going to put the question back to you. Um, <laughs> What good reason can you think of? Um, and again, you know, we're speaking in terms of there's not a litigation hold, so you don't need the records um, to help you out in you know any litigation. Um, why would you hold? What what good would come out of them? You know, from holding them longer than you absolutely have to. Yeah, I mean, Noel hit on one of the key issues is where I think a lot of clients it comes down to a a, a cost issue. Right, their their record keeping providers, those vendors, are I think, particularly from what I've seen in recent history, they're taking a fresh look at the cost that they're laying off onto the actual firms. I know a couple vendors that are actually uh, not using flat rates anymore, and instead saying, "Here's like you know a cost per gig or a cost per terabyte," and for some of the medium and larger firms. The, the cost can become pretty significant. I think the other thing too is just like to the extent you, you know, you are 
subject to an investigation by the SEC or FINRA or state regulator. Let's not forget about Galvin's office here in Mass, right? Right. If you're subject to an inquiry or an investigation or enforcement action, and, you know, for example, you can't show that, sure, like after X number of years, we we destroy things because we're not required to retain them. It creates the impression almost for a regulator that they can ask for anything to the beginning of time. And so if if you don't, you know, destroy after nine years or 12 years, they may go back and say, look, we we get it that you were able to destroy a particular particular record. And maybe the statute of limitations only goes back a certain number of years, which is smaller, but um, or shorter. But we're going to ask for things 12, 15, 20 years ago. And I think that actually creates a little bit of exposure for firms. So it's part of the calculus of like there's cost. There's exposure and all of it leads to some form of potential liability, potentially. Is there, so I've heard this, um, is there an argument that from a litigation perspective, sometimes maintaining a record could help you get out of an issue and a claim? Yeah. And and the question is, is that one-off worth it? And how many times does that one instance that benefited you, how how many times does that also hurt you? Um, but that's a conversation I've also had at a couple of different firms um, as a reason why you'd retain records yeah. for, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think about the, the dash cam commercials that I see on Instagram as I'm doom scrolling at 4 a.m. when one of the kids is crying. And I'm like, yeah, that seems cool if it like is is getting you out of it, right? Like the accident wasn't your fault. But to the extent the accident was your fault, it's putting you squarely in the blame category. So I feel like that same that same logic applies here. It really just depends on whether or not you were complying with it, whatever the particular obligation is. I mean, if you're if you have that record, then you also have to be prepared to answer the question about so where are all those other records that show that you weren't complying with the the law? Um, yeah. You know, you can't you know selectively hold on to the ones that look good and destroy the ones that look bad. Yep. And I want to try to get people out of here in about five minutes, so maybe we'll shift really quickly to the electronic communication settlements. And Ethan, you mentioned um, that they dealt with firms' use of off-channel communications, WhatsApp, uh, text messages. And the the majority of the settlements have involved BDs, but there were a couple of affiliated advisors that were involved. There's been upwards of $2 billion, with a B, dollars in fines that the SEC is levied on firms. I think we're going to see more over the course of the coming you know, 12 to 18 months, certainly. And I think we're going to see more out of FINRA on that front. And I just guess for both of you wondering... How are you looking at things any differently? Are you guys looking at, you know, um, enhanced policies and procedures, new or different training? What are you doing that's either new or different compared to what you were doing two years ago before these issues uh, really cropped up, recognizing that these have always been, um, this has always been activity that uh, basically is prohibited, right? You've got to retain your, uh, your communications and do so in a compliant manner. What are you guys doing new or different on that front? I, I can jump in. So uh, yes and yes. Um, looking at our policies and procedures um, and looking at, at trainings, um, communicating more often and with greater kind of detail um, with examples to not just our advisors, which I think is is not the scope of these recent actions, um, but tends to be, I think, when we think about books and records uh, and retaining communications, you tend to think about the advisor's interaction with the client. Um, And these are really talking about, these actions are talking about home office staff and particularly in specific roles, right? So your executive officers, your trading managers, um, and, you know, are they setting the tone from the top? Are, are, Are they text messaging and, and, and can you have open and honest communication with your executive team about what it is that they're exactly doing um, and how they're doing it. And um, and then making sure that you can pivot to, if they are, right, then pivoting to channels and offering options so that they can, you can still facilitate communication the way that I think that we're used to nowadays, um, which is on our phone, 
in a way that is actually compliant where we're retaining the records. So, you know, part of that conversation is, do we have systems today that can facilitate that? Um, and if we don't, are there other systems that we can look to um, or are there better systems uh, available? Do we make those applications available only to a limited number of people versus a wider audience? I mean, these are just kind of all questions that uh, I think firms should be asking and looking at. Um, but honest and open dialogue and training are key right now. And, and to the extent that you can, I mean, I feel like any enforcement action, right? You take a look at the action and then you look at what you're doing and the more proactive you can be if and when the SEC decides or FINRA decides to knock on your door, you can show that you've been proactive. And so even if they do find um, non-compliance in the area, you can show that you've identified and remediated before they walk in the door. And is that going to alleviate um, an enforcement action? Maybe not, but it will certainly go part go toward the negotiations and reducing what sort of penalties you have to pay. Yeah, I mean, good faith efforts. And to the extent we yeah. want to even call it cooperation credit yeah. uh, can certainly be helpful. And Ethan, um, maybe to wrap it up, you know, what I always struggle with is advising clients when the practical reality of how business gets done doesn't align with what the rules require. And in particular, in these cases where, you know, over the last, call it decade or so, where 10 years ago, we all used to carry around two devices, right? And seven to 10 years ago, firms started saying, oh, you know, like, we're not going to, we're not going to give you your own firm issued device. We'll give you 40 bucks a month for a data plan and just collapse it all down. And we're going to, we're not going to look at, at your stuff. Um, we're only going to get what we need for for business purposes. That creeps me out about, about you know, our apps on our phones, but I kind of roll with it. Um, you know, how are you advising clients when they're like, look, the, the requirement just doesn't line up with how our advisors in the field actually conduct business? So I th there are a couple of different things. I think one is you have to step back um, and you have to, I think, get um, your privacy folks involved, um, because I think it's a practical matter. Um, there are a couple ways of doing this. Uh, I mean, well, one way, you know, one element is training. And I think you do have to train people. And what I'll mention in that regard is one of the first, one of the first 12 that um, the SEC went after was Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Why am I mentioning them? Um, because back in 2019, um, they appear to have taken a look and said, something's wrong here. Um, we're going to get into trouble. And so they went and they issued um, business phones to more than 14,000 brokers. But if you go and you look at the enforcement action, you'll see that even after they did this, um, they were still using personal devices during this period in question after they issued the, the business phones. So training is vitally important. But then moving training to the side, um, the next question is, do you, you, know, do you still um, use a, a single personal device or you know, do you issue two devices? And if you're going to go with a single device solution, you need to make sure that if you're going to snoop and you pretty much have to snoop um, in order to make sure that uh, you're staying on side of the record keeping requirements, um, you're not running afoul of uh, your state's uh, privacy uh, regulations. So, you know, it's a delicate dance. Yeah, that's a really important point, Ethan. Thank you for making it. I think, Noel, you alluded to new solutions on the tech side that have been rolled out. And um, I've seen a couple of those firsthand. They're a little clunky and they're certainly not perfect solutions, but I think there is more at the disposal of firms. And I think certainly as the vendors realize the opportunity to provide a greater level of service, particularly related to this issue, I think we'll see um, more roll out their offerings. So- and, um, and Nick, just yeah, the other thing, um, 
the challenge, one of the challenges here is that you're talking about surveilling what you don't know and how do you do that, right? And so training is a huge part of that because you're you're trying to get out ahead of it. You're trying to educate people to do what they're supposed to do and not use their personal devices to communicate. Um, but you can, so, so how do you, <laughs> without having the privacy issues and having to actually look at somebody's personal device, I mean, how do you surveil what you don't know? Yeah. And I think that's one of the the biggest challenges that we have here. Um, but one thing that you can do is take a look at your, what you do surveil and make sure that, you know, when you're doing email review, um, flag certain words, you know, um, like text messages or WhatsApp, and you can put all of those names into the system and see what they come back with. And, you know, and if something comes back or, or, or during your branch exam program, if they're reading through an email chain and they realize there's like a block missing, maybe you question that and you say, well, did you have a conversation about this or, or were, did you text about it? And then you came back to email or like, well, how did, how did that work? So I mm-hmm. think training within your surveillance system and, and compliance programs is also key to making sure you get out ahead of this. Um, I think it's a key, a key point. And, and maybe, yeah. you know, again, keeping with the theme of like, everything that's old is new again. Ideas like getting attestations from your personnel at the end of the year during annual compliance training that you haven't used off-channel communications, things like that, much like um, personal training and things like that. And I don't want to give the regulators any ideas, um, so I probably should shut up now. But, uh, you know, what would be really scary is if, like, there's a there's an inference that firms should start checking cell phone records, like they check brokerage account statements. And um, I haven't heard of any firms going to that extent yet, but that that could be the future. Who knows? So with that scary idea, maybe we'll wrap it up. I didn't see any questions from the group, and I think we've got six people on. So Ashley, David, Iris, Katie, Mark, and Thomas, thank you. That was uh, easy to rattle you, rattle the names off. Thank you guys for joining us today and hanging in for the whole time. And uh, with that, I think we could probably wrap. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Have a great afternoon. Bye.